Romans chapter 1, verses 7 through 13. Here's what Paul writes. To all in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making a request if, by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be strengthened or established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. One of the things Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 3, is that he doesn't build upon any other man's foundation, that God has called him, in a sense, to be a pioneer to go to new regions. But now he's going to Rome, and Rome already has Christians that are there in place. There are already believers in place there. And Paul is declaring that he's going to come to them. And we might think that Paul is now breaking his tradition of not building on another man's foundation. But what we could understand is that, in many ways, the ministry that Paul has had throughout the Roman Empire has percolated and flowed back into Rome. And there in Rome, the gospel that has touched these other regions of the Roman Empire is through the witness of those that he's reached And the team that have worked with them have reached, have brought their witness back to Rome. And there are many that are coming to Christ as a result. And a great thing is taking place. And so there's no one, in a sense, that can take credit for being the founder of the church in Rome. But Paul does have a unique designation that's been placed upon him by God. He's been called of Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He's called to come and to bring the gospel to the Gentile community. And so Paul calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he's writing to this largely Gentile church in Rome. Another tension that you'll see in the writings of almost all of Paul's letters is, although he's communicating primarily to a Gentile audience and Gentiles who are turning to Christ, there is within them a Jewish community. And they're learning to live together. And it's kind of rough on the Jews because the Jewish community has lived with an understanding that they are the special chosen people of God. And they're particularly chosen because of a lifestyle they chose to follow that God gave them in which they maintained certain levels of cultural and ceremonial purity, not touching certain things, not eating certain things. This has been the basis on which they've maintained their distinctiveness as God's chosen, loved people. And now that the church is rising up to the Gentiles, the Gentiles have for years felt this kind of cold shoulder from the Jews. And the Jews have a hard time shedding this sense of their special privilege. Paul, in many of his letters, is trying to find a way to encourage these two groups to come together. One of the things that's actually taking place is Paul is writing this while he's in Corinth, and he's getting ready to return to Jerusalem, and he writes about this, in order to bring an offering from the Gentile churches to bless the church in Jerusalem. He actually prays at the end of the letter of Romans, he asks that his gift would be received. Because there are some Christians in Jerusalem that don't have a high view of Paul. They think that Paul is somehow undermining the Jewish faith that they've learned and that he's teaching somewhat of a lesser form of Christianity. He's watered it down for the Gentiles. And there's this kind of conflict that's going on as well that Paul is aware of when he writes his letter to the Romans. And so when you read the book of Romans, you'll see 
throughout the book of Romans that Paul is addressing both Gentiles and Jews. And in the first part of Romans, he puts them all in the same place. They're all under the wrath of God. He also provides salvation for them in the same point. It's all through faith in Jesus alone. And then he even has a conversation which the Gentiles are not to think of themselves as privileged beyond the Jews. He addresses this in Romans 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans. And then commonly together, he gives them instructions on how they're to live together and how they're to carry out the will of God together. So these are things that are in the mind of Paul here. In this passage that we've just read, Paul is simply introducing somewhat of his heart intent. He's simply sharing with them his own attitudes as he approaches them in ministry. This should be incredibly helpful for us when we think of how we should be approaching ministry among one another, what our attitude should be. Before Paul begins to give any kind of specific instruction in his letter, he just tells them what is in his heart towards these people and towards those he's writing to. And actually, as a result, his words are particularly instructive. They're instructive because he's not trying to be instructive. He's not trying to give statements of what they're to do and what they're to believe and what are the finer points of the way they're to live. He's just telling them what his heart attitude is. And out of that, you read into it. Tremendous, wonderful instruction on what our attitude should be. Let me give you an example of this. In verse 8, I think it is, Paul describes something of the manner in which he prays. And he's just describing the, the attitude that he has in praying for the people of Rome. And yet, what he says in the moment in which he expresses this is, is wonderfully instructive for us. He's not trying to be instructive, but it's wonderfully instructive for us. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, he writes. And here Paul reveals the personal practice that he has in prayer that is very instructive. Paul's prayer is not remote. It's intimate. He is writing from a deep claim or deep sense of God's claim upon him as his own. God owns him, my God, he says. In the same way, Paul, in this sense of God's claim or ownership over him, feels a claim upon God. And so Paul also claims God as his own as well. We sang that song, I am his and he is mine. And that's the mentality that Paul has when he enters into his prayers. He's aware that I am God's and God is mine. And this is not, by the way, the normal way in which Paul refers to God when he speaks. When Paul speaks to God when he's writing his letters, he usually projects God forward in these very high and transcendent and other terms. Oftentimes when Paul is teaching and instructing, he breaks forward in these tremendous doxologies of praise in which he exalts God in this highest place. Here's an example. In Romans 11, verse 33, Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. God is, Paul is saying, beyond us in our ability to comprehend and understand him. Four or five times, Paul reveals this idea of God in a personal way, particularly when he's speaking to people and he's wanting to lay upon them personal applications of how they ought to live. So in Philippians 4.19, Paul says, My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He brings this great powerful God down in some point of personal application and 
This is something, the attitude Paul has when he comes to God in prayer. Although God is wonderful and powerful and transcendent, and we'll refer to this in just a moment, he's also intimate and near, and he, he has a claim upon them. Let me give you a different example of this. Go to Acts chapter 27. Here, not long after this, Paul is going to make his way to Jerusalem, and Paul doesn't receive such a great reception from some individuals. And as a result, Paul is put into prison, and Paul declares a right to go and present himself before Caesar, and so then Paul is put on a ship and he's sent as a prisoner back to Rome. That's how Paul gets to Rome. He gets to Rome, which he was planning to go to when he writes this letter, but he gets there as a prisoner bound to be going before Caesar. And as Paul is making this journey, he's put on a ship and at some point in time, he warns the captain of the ship that they shouldn't leave the port they're in because he understands that the weather is going to turn against them and it would be dangerous for them. But the captain ignores the prisoner Paul's advice. They set out for sale. Anyhow, as a result, a great storm and the, and the weather turns against them and they're caught in that storm and the ship is being driven along and they have no control over where they're going and it seems very certain that the ship is going to be lost and that everyone on the ship is going to be lost as well. They're all going to perish and die. Paul sets himself to fasting and praying to discern what is going to happen to them in the middle of this perilous moment they're in. In verse 21b... Paul then steps forward and speaks to the captain of the ship and commander of the ship, and he says this. Men, I like this, you should have listened to me. (laughs) My wife says that often to me. (laughs) You should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only to the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. But here we see Paul's attitude even as he's fasting and praying and the message that God gives to him. It's a message from the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Do you see that sense of ownership that's in Paul's life? as he's praying and coming before the Lord. And so this this attitude is expressed as he talks about his prayers to those in Rome. I thank my God, he says. I thank my God. And then he says, through Jesus Christ. And this is also very interesting and instructive in how Paul prays. Although Paul senses this great sense of intimacy with God and ownership with God and claim upon God, Paul never loses a sense of the awesomeness of God and the fact that he cannot somehow saunter into God's presence on his own. He has to, like they did in the old, he has to come before God through the offering of a sacrifice and he has to come to God through the means of a priest that represents him. But the sacrifice is Jesus Christ and the priest is Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, I come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And it's not just true in order to be born again. It's true in order to pray. You want to come to God and seek God and communicate to Him, this holy and awesome God. You come holding on to the hem of the garment of our Lord Jesus Christ. You enter into the presence of God with your high priest. You enter by way of His sacrifice and His life because God is still holy. God is still to be revered, and he's still awesome. And so you see Paul sharing in this just this statement he makes, wonderful instruction to us. 
on the attitude that should be in us as we approach God in prayer, a sense of intimacy, a sense of his claim upon our lives, a sense of our claim upon his life, but oh, only, only, still reverential, still in awe, still in wonder. Only through Jesus Christ, only in his name. In fact, the Lord Jesus taught us to pray and ask all things in his name for this very reason. Now, that's a point of instruction we get here that I'm just kind of throwing in for free. It's just added to the passage that we're looking at. The primary lesson that I get when I look at this passage is one regarding the heart that I'm to have in serving and ministering to the members of the family of God, the members of the church. I find here that I'm being taught how I'm to approach you, how I'm to approach those brothers and sisters that I work with in different countries around the world, what what attitude is supposed to be within me? What are the desires of ministry I want to have with them? How I perceive them and understand them. And it also reveals to me what the attitudes are that we are to have towards one another. What is the impact that we should want to have upon one another? And then along with one another, what's the impact that we should want to have with others who are in our lives together? What's the, in a sense, the dynamic of service that should be developed in us as we live together before the Lord as his servants and as members of his redeemed family. And I think we see much in this passage that instructs us in this way. I'm going to only share with you. I've got six points. I'm going to share with you three this morning. And we'll just begin working our way through it. And we'll see these attitudes that shape. And, and keep in mind now, this is what is in the heart of Paul before he ever writes his letter to the Romans. Before he steps to minister to them. This is the attitude that he has towards the people in Rome, and it tells us something, the attitude that he has towards all those that he he ministered to as he wrote his letters to them. And the first thing I want you to see in verse 7, I want you to note that Paul brings to them a statement of inclusion and of the blessing that belongs to them because they are included as the people of God. So he's writing these Gentile Christians largely in Rome And the statement he makes is a statement that includes them now and brings them into and folds them into the covenant promises and the covenant relationship that God has with his own special chosen people. And as a result, it opens up before them the blessings and the provisions that God wants to pour out upon his people. Paul writes, to all who are in Rome, now he's speaking to all the believers. When he says to all in Rome, he's just referring to those Gentile believers and those Jewish believers that are there with him who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Jews, as we mentioned before, that sensed that they had this unique relationship with God. They were the ones who God had uniquely chosen God had uniquely loved, and in that love, God had uniquely chosen, and out of that choosing, God had uniquely called in order that they might be holy people. That's why they were considered holy people. They were holy because God loved them, and God chose them, and God called them. And so that separated them out for uniquely God's gracious goodness to be poured out in favor upon them above all people, and God's peace and the great relationship that they would experience above all people. And you see this idea developed throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verses 7 and 8, Moses is addressing the people of Israel. There Moses writes to them and says, The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you, 
And because he would keep the oath, the covenants that he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of King Pharaoh. You have experienced redemption. You've experienced salvation from your bondagement and your slavery because God loves you. Because he's called you and chose you just as he did to your fathers. And now Paul is writing to this redeemed people of God through Jesus Christ in Rome and he's applying to them the same terminology. You're loved. You're chosen. You're called. You belong in this community. Those who consider themselves to be the people of God. And because of this idea, the Jews also understood that they, in that identity, were the recipients of very wonderful and profound blessings that were, in a sense, uniquely to be poured out upon them. And so, before the sacrificial system, at the end of the day, in the beginning of the day, it was the custom of the priests of Israel to raise their hands over the people of Israel and bless them. And the blessing that they gave is the very blessing that Paul is pronouncing here. Number 6, 24 through 26, I want to read to you the blessing that the priest would pronounce over the people of Israel. He would say this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. That is, be kind to you. The Lord lift his countenance up upon you and give you peace, put a shalom upon you. And now, in this letter Paul is writing to these Gentile Christians largely in Rome, he offers them the exact same benediction, the priestly benediction that was poured over the people of Israel before the temple. Not only does God include them into the people of God, but now he he includes them into the claim of God's gracious outpouring and God's peace and God's blessing. And and not only does he say now that the Lord bless you, but now he says the Father bless you and Jesus Christ. And so he places the Gentiles within the people of God and he places the Lord Jesus as the blesser within the Godhead himself, the one blessing. But just see this. Paul sees these that he's writing to as belonging to God. He sees them as those who are loved of God and called of God. And he sees them in this light as the ones whom it is within God's very heart to bless. God wants to pour out blessings upon them. When Paul says grace and peace to you, which Paul says over and over again in his letters, Paul is not trying to outdo God here. He is wishing for them what God wishes for them what God had desired and longed to pour upon his people Israel and what God now wants to pour upon them, grace, undeserved kindness and goodness of God flowing over them, peace, unobstructed delight in living under the watchful eye of God and the calm of knowing that they were reconciled and right with him. And May you live receiving God's kindness, he's basically saying. May you live knowing and increasingly knowing the peace of his presence and These are the unique privileges belong to those who have lovingly been called and delivered from their sin and born again as God's people into God's family. Peter actually uses the exact same language when he's speaking to what's primarily a Jewish community of believers. And yet when we read Peter's word, we understand that Peter is not offering this blessing because they belong to Jews or they're part of the Jewish community. It's because they've come to Christ. And now the blessing is poured out through them through Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter says this. It's the same idea we're talking about here with Paul. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, 
who were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now, through Jesus Christ and your faith in him, have obtained mercy. And this is the same identity that Paul gives to these Christians in Rome. They belong to the same community as he does. They live under the same blessings as he does. There is an openness that's being given to them of their identity, this identification of them as loved and called of God, as candidates of God's special blessings of grace and peace. And this leads Paul as he steps forward to minister to them. This is the mindset Paul has. This is the way he identifies them before he even comes among them to minister to them. He's ministering to the select chosen people of God. People have been redeemed of God and brought into his community and are the ones who are uniquely in the right position to receive God's blessings of grace and love and peace. Loved of God, chosen of God. That's his mentality when he goes to them. There's kind of a question we could ask ourselves. How do you view other Christians and members in the church? What do you consider as the standing of their life? When you approach them and we with one another. When I was a, a young boy going to church camp, there was a, a couple of young children that had been brought by a missionary family that was visiting one year. And they were two little children. They were two little black children, a little boy and a little girl, and they were about my age. They were about our ages. What we discovered was that they were the children of the king of the country in northern Africa where this missionary couple was from. And that there was a civil war taking place in that country. And so the, the king had commissioned this missionary family to guard his children. And so they'd come back to the States to be under the care and watchful eye of these missionaries. And you know, that, that kind of changed the way that we treated these kids. We had the idea that they were royalty. There was a prince and a princess in our midst. You know, you're going down the slide and playing on the swing set. And when you're on the teeter-totter, the kid across from you is a prince. It's kind of impressive and different sense in which we conducted ourselves with them in a kind of honor that we gave them and we felt ourselves as well honored to be with royalty. How do you consider one another? Princes? Princesses? Children of the king? A royal priesthood? A called out people chosen of God designed by him? to be blessed by him, be unique recipients of his love and his grace, of his favor and his goodness. And that, by the way, without reference to how you perform and what you do, just wanting to see them blessed, just wanting to see them lived under that blessing. A lot of the letters that Paul writes, he uses the same introduction. Grace and peace, grace and peace. It's a really a reflection that they are now included as the people of God. And by the way, when he wrote those letters, it wasn't because everything was going hunky-dory. It wasn't because they were all behaving well. Oftentimes he wrote because they were kind of being problematic and they were kind of doing some disappointing things and they were expressing themselves in ways that were not really particularly honoring to one another and God. But Paul, when he goes to address them, never forgets. They're the people of God. They're uniquely blessed of God. They're called of God. And they're to be recipients of His grace and peace. It has to be our attitude when we approach one another. When we come near to one another to serve and bless. The very first word in verse 8 says, first. By the way, when we look at that word first, we know that what he really means there is foremost. That he's not kind of giving a sequential point of first, second, third, fourth. And the reason we know that is because he doesn't give us second, third, or fourth. He just gives us first. And so when you see that word first, what he really means is most of all, foremost, 
Most importantly. And so my second point is actually the most important thing Paul wants them to know. He receives them as members of the blessed people of God. These Gentile believers, I include you in my mind is that you belong to the people of God just as the Jews had. I approach you in that way. And now what Paul says is, I'm glad that that's the case. I'm thankful that it's so. First, foremost, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken throughout the whole world. Now, Paul is kind of exaggerating there. He's using a bit of poetic license when he says that their faith is spoken throughout the whole world. He's basically saying in all the region in which he's worked, not only has the gospel made its way back to Rome, but the the witness and testimony of people responding to the gospel has made its way back to all these different communities and all these places. And so everywhere Paul works, there's the rumor going on that there are people in Rome who are believing in Christ. By the way, when he says here, the knowledge of your faith is spoken throughout the whole world, he's not saying your really heroic actions of faith, the great deeds and mighty deeds that you're doing in faith, the remarkable service that you're rendering in faith. That's not what he's referring to. He's just referring to the fact that it's getting back to us that you're turning to Jesus Christ and believing and trusting in him. Your faith is being spoken of. Your decision to repent of your sins and come to him. It's finding its way back to us. And, you know, I'm so thankful to learn this. The word was getting out that here in the capital city of the Roman Empire, that place that was the center of the worship of Caesar, that place where it was propagated all kinds of false forms of worship in which there was this power that was being rendered that was harsh and was seemingly delivered by the power of man. Here in this place, there's this story being told of people who are coming to faith throughout the Roman city, even within the royal household itself. As that story is told and it comes back, it's a blessing to those who are hearing it. And they're, they're delighted to find out that this is so. Again, just to hear that people are coming into saving faith and that this, this faith is taking root and this seed is producing fruit in the city of Rome is something that causes them to be very grateful. And by the way, I have to say something here that when God is really at work in the church, uh, the great mark of it is a fruitfulness of people coming to Jesus. And you don't have to advertise it. There were no banners being put up. There was no message going out. There was no rump-a-pum where they were trying to attract people to their community. Nowadays, you know, if there's a church oftentimes in your community that's growing really fast, pastors know it, but it's not because more people are coming to Christ. It's because the people in their church are leaving to go to that church. You know, it's like the latest thing. It's the most popular church. The music is great, you know, that's dynamic. And so they know, yeah, I know that church is growing now. But that's not how it was then. (laughs) When the church was growing and expanding, it was because... People were meeting the Lord Jesus and being saved. And they didn't have to advertise it. They didn't have to try to be unique and stand out in order to position themselves in the community. That message got out. That message was heard. It started to ripple through. People were related to people whose lives were changed. It was odd and strange to them. They started talking about it. And that got out through the community. Other people were discovering these things. And that got out too. You'll remember that Paul writes the letter to Philemon. Later, Paul is going to go back to Rome. As I said, he's going to go in chains as a prisoner. And Somehow during that time, he comes in contact with a man who has fled the city in which he lived and the master that claimed him as a slave. And that man was led to Christ by Paul, Onesimus. And he's discipled by Paul in Rome. And then Onesimus goes back and he goes back to the house of Philemon. 
Paul writes him and says, now I want you to receive him, and I don't want you to be harsh on the slave, but take him back into a slavery. Paul says, no, I want you to receive him now as a brother. In fact, I want you to receive him like you received me. I want you to give him the best room in your house, basically. But you see how the gospel and its impact on people's lives began to find its way back and be heard. It began to work through a network of relationships and sound forth. And that's what happened when God's really at work. You know, we should pray above everything else is God send us people who are ripe for the harvest and send us people who are searching for you and who you're bringing your gospel before them. And oh God, may they come to you and finally hear a place that receives them with delight and joy because they found Jesus with us. And oh God, let their life and that story be sounded forth in this community. Let there be a ripple effect to this community of people who are coming to you and being saved. That's what's happening here. Paul's been at this for over 20 years now. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been calling people to, to faith in Jesus Christ. He's begun to add up the numbers of his work that has happened as a result of his witness and the witness of others. And the church is growing, by the way. You know, I mentioned at the very beginning of this series that during the apostolic period, the, the Christian community grew from a handful of believers to over a half a million. So there's a response to the gospel that's taking place. And yet Paul never takes for granted these good reports. He receives the news foremost and above everything else with thanksgiving and gladness. A moment of gratitude that sweeps over him. It tells me that Paul was never in this laboring in his own power, in his own might, in his own strength, just trying to get people to buy whatever he was selling. It tells me that Paul was being driven forward in all his actions by the Spirit of Christ. That Spirit of God that the Bible teaches us rejoices when one sinner repents. And that spirit hasn't left Paul in his ministry. He hasn't developed some formula that he follows now and he's just following the process of how to proselytize and help to bring people to church. He's going forward in the power of the spirit of Christ and as a result, when people respond to the gospel, he feels the joy of the spirit of Christ all over again every single time. It's, he's not got tired of it. You know, you can get tired of good things. There are all kinds of things that you can experience that you might enjoy and you might like and later in life you'll find out that it doesn't thrill you in the same way. Because you're getting old, it just you lose your emotional or energetic response to those things. You don't fire off the same way. You know, a little child, you know that they're young because you can take them in your arms and you throw them up in the air and you catch them and they feel that joy. They, they do it again and say, you do it again. And then they say, do it again. And you do it again. And they say, do it again. And you do it. And they don't get tired because they're young. But you know you're old because you can only do it four or five times. And it's like, that's as much as I can do it again. We don't have the bounce back. But God is infinitely young in a sense. He's the eternal life. And he never tires. And you know what he never tires of? People turning to him in repentance and faith. Fills them with great joy and delight. And Paul is ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's continued to do so. He's not defaulted to what he's learned and just his wisdom. And that, you know, he's, he's figured it all out. He's always labored, depending completely upon the enabling of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God working through him. And as a result, he's always filled with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving when he learns that more people are coming to him. I don't think that we can minister to God's people effectively. I don't think we can minister to God's people effectively if we're not grateful for God's people. If we 
are to minister and be used of God. It's not a gratitude because, well, we're surrounded by people with tremendous gifts. We're surrounded with people that are really dedicated and working hard. You know, I'm so grateful because they have great stories. People have great stories of spiritual exploits that they're performing. And No, we're just grateful that they've trusted in Jesus, that they've decided to answer his call, that they've joined the family. I call this the ministry of presence. Just glad that you're here and we're here together and that we love the Lord Jesus. Not necessarily what you've accomplished. You know, you're going to falter. You're going to stumble. You're not always going to do it right, but I'm glad you trusted in him. I'm grateful for one another without assaying your giftedness or your abilities, just that you've repented and said yes to Jesus. That's the foremost attitude needed to be sustained in ministering to one another. It's an attitude that fills the heart of a person filled with the Spirit among one another. You remember when Paul's talking about the relationship of the church together among one another? He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, making songs and hymns, singing to one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. The very capacity to sing with delight among one another rises out of this living our lives in the fullness of the Spirit. Grateful that you're glad that including you in the family of God, including you under his covenants, including you as the special recipients of his grace and of his peace, and then thankful that that's the case. Grateful that that's the case. Just your testimony of faith. Just that you've believed in him. And that's the groundwork. That's the foundation from which... Meaningful, impactful ministry rises. Mentioned that our songs that we sing now are so much of the song, it's about me and mine and my experience. You go and look at the songs and you'll see that, particularly this started happening in the late 1800s, it all kind of turned into a devotional expression of all I was getting out of my walk with God. But if you go back prior to that, you'll see that most of the songs aren't with me's and my's and I's, they're we's and us and ours. It was a church that life together experienced the praise of God and the worship of God. And they lived in that way because, well, I think that's the work of the Spirit. Glad to be with one another. Out of that ministry rises. We'll stop there. We'll see some other attitudes that now out of that begin to shape in Paul's life. And the first thing we'll see is that because of this, Paul becomes incredibly vigilant in prayer. It's because he's glad to include them in his family as a part of the family he belongs to, and he's thankful that that's the case, that now he begins to pray for them. You know, I'll give you a little, a little introduction in, on behalf as a conclusion. You, you're a parent. You have a child that's on the way. It's just a couple. You've got married. You've been married for a couple years now. A little one is coming, and the day comes when you receive them, and now they're received into your family, this new family that's declared. It was declared when you got married. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. And now a new family is there. Now the baby's coming. They're a part of that family. And you receive them in that home. And, and you're glad. You're so glad that that's the case. And then a life of prayer begins. You begin praying for that little one. That's how it is with Christian parents. That's how your ministry and service to them rises. That's how it works for us too. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear Jesus, not possible as a club 
not possible to come to these things as some fraternal organization. This attitude, oh God, this attitude can only be carried forth in us because we receive the Spirit of Christ who loved his own and to the very end imparted his life to them, who prayerfully chose them and then prayerfully walked along with them and in the end said, you call me teacher, but now I call you friends. Thank you, Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us that you call us brothers and sisters and that you stand up in the midst of the congregation to give you praise. You'd said where two or three are gathered in your name, you're there in the midst. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence hallowing our lives, for you being the head of our, our life here. And so we, your body, we, your body, become one together, united in the family of God, the people of God. Thank you. Lord Jesus, now let your spirit of love for each and every individual fill us with your spirit of gratitude and love for one another. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.